At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. Uh, if you've been paying attention to culture over the last little bit, you've probably noticed that there was a uh, Disney movie that kind of took the world by storm recently, and it was the movie Encanto. So if you haven't seen Encanto, encountered Encanto, Encanto, heard the music from Encanto, then you might not have kids or have grandkids. But for the rest of us, we've had that dang song stuck in our head now for like six months straight. Um, Encanto is an interesting movie. If you ever get the chance to see it, I, and I would encourage you to, it's, it's got some compelling themes that I think are good for us to just wrestle with. Uh, but it's an interesting movie in that it tells the story of the magical family who live in the hills of Colombia. And this family's been blessed with a miracle. Each one of them, as they come of age, receives a certain magical gift. Uh, and that kind of sets this family apart. And at the beginning of the movie, this family kind of celebrates who they are and the blessing that they are to the community. But over time, the movie kind of begins to unpack that there's actually kind of a dysfunction that exists within this family and certain levels of brokenness. Now, dysfunction in Disney movies on a family is not something that's entirely revolutionary. Actually, when I was thinking about it this week, I realized, oh, there's actually a lot of like Disney movies that have some sort of family dysfunction. I mean, Cinderella, that, that's one messed up blended family. I don't know if you've seen that, right? I'm like, Where's the mom in like half the Disney movies? Like she's just never there or talked about. I mean, the Lion King, you've got sibling rivalry to the eighth. So it's not the dysfunction of a family that's unique in Encanto, but it's the fact that the dysfunction is actually the plot of the movie. What you realize if you've seen Encanto is there's no real outside villain. Unlike most traditional Disney movies that kind of have as an outside villain that brings an obstacle that the hero has to overcome, the obstacle that kind of exists within Encanto actually comes from within the family dynamic and the reality of how they wrestle through the experiences as they've been passed, especially through the grandmother, into the rest of the family. And I think it's this kind of unique reality of Encanto that actually has caused it to become such a cultural phenomenon. Because for many people, when they engage this movie, they feel a resonance with their own family experience. Some of us feel when we hear songs like surface pressure, the pressures that our family unintentionally put on us. Some of us know that there's parts of our family that we don't talk about, just like we don't talk about Bruno, right? We know the wrestling of trying to figure out who am I in the midst of these people and this reality and my heritage and my history and how that's brought to bear. All of us, I think, at some point wrestle and try to have to reckon with the reality of our families. Even those of us that feel like we've come from great families still have aspects of our family that we have to reckon with, that we have to deal with, that we process through. And I think many people in our world often are left trying to navigate those things on their own. And that's why this morning we want to kind of launch into a new series that we're calling Family Why Bother? Because we recognize all of us have families that we come from. We exist in some sort of family unit. We have different roles within our families of origin, our current family, all of that. That oftentimes we're kind of trying to work to navigate, just like we see in the story in Kanto. And 
We don't want to be the sort of people that just have to figure that out on our own. We believe that God has actually given us his word to help us in that regard. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to turn to God's word and look really actually at the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which lays for us some really key foundations and how we understand family and how we navigate family. We're going to learn at some of the first families of humanity and some of the first families of faith to see what does God have to say to us as we try to navigate our own family dynamics that we exist and live in. And so I want to invite you as we kind of move forward into this next several weeks as we unpack what, why is bother with family? What is it about family and how do we navigate it? But this morning, we're going to start at the very beginning, which I heard is a very good place to start. So, um, but honestly, I know, bad joke, but if we're going to navigate family dynamics and we're going to kind of step into this, I think it's important for us to first take a step back and set some foundations to ask the sort of questions like, what is family really all about? And I think to answer that question, we even have to go further back a little bit to say, well, what are we as human beings about? Like, what is humanity all about? Now, when you ask those sort of questions of family, us, humanity, right, you're getting into some of the big questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? How does that relate to the people around me? And I think as we ask those questions, that's why it's important for us to kind of set a foundation that will help us navigate even as we engage the rest of the book. And so this morning, I want to look at, together at a story in the reality of how God created humanity that will help set some of those foundations and then kind of invite us to consider what trajectory we're going to move forward in our lives and in our family dynamics. So I already read our passage, but we're in Genesis 1. And I just want to set a little bit of the context for us, and then we're going to kind of unpack this passage and see what God has to say for us in light of it. So Genesis 1 recounts the story of God's creation of the world, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Genesis 1 tells a unique pattern of how God created the world. It says at the very beginning in Genesis 1-2 that the earth was formless and void. The Hebrew phrase is tovu vavohu, meaning the earth did not have form and it was not filled. It was empty. And so what God does then in Genesis 1 is he actually through his power, forms the earth and then fills it. In fact, that's the whole framework of Genesis chapter one. God does that through a series of six days. In the first three days, God forms the earth. He forms the skies and the waters and the heavens. He separates the waters and the heavens. He separates day from night. God works to form the earth. In days four through six, God then fills the earth. He fills the heavens with the sun and the stars and the moon. He fills the land with creatures and the sea with creatures. And God forms and fills the earth. And as you read through these days, there's this certain rhythm that God engages as he does this. Actually, each day kind of, can, for the most part, has this same kind of structure to it. It begins with God speaking. God coming and saying, let it be or let there be light. God says. And then the text says, it was so. Because when God speaks, he gets what he wants. That's the point when you're God, right? You speak and things come into being. And then each day ends with, and it was good. And there was morning and there was evening. And so if we read through the first 25 verses, we won't take time today, but you would feel this rhythm. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. And God said, and it was so, and it was good. Now, when you come to Genesis then, 125 in verse 25 of the first chapter, you see a break away from that pattern. 
You can actually see it with me. Look at it for a second. It says, And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Right? So it's filling, filling the earth. That's the image here. And then it says, And God saw that it was good. And your expectancy is that the next phrase is going to be, And it was evening and it was morning. But that's not what happens. What happens is God continues speaking. And actually, the passage that we're looking at becomes a distinct aspect of God's creation. The author actually puts an emphasis on this section in the story because of its importance, because it focuses on the reality of humanity, and even the structure sets it apart. And not only does the structure set it apart, but God begins to do something in this passage that is incredibly unique. And that really is informative of how we understand ourselves. There's three things you're going to see in this passage today that I think is important as foundations for us, for how we understand who we are and how we understand family. And the first thing that we see right away in this text is that when it comes to who we are, God decrees human dominion. God decrees human dominion. In Genesis 1.26, the verbs that have been used up to this point in the passage, I know, hang with me on the grammar, but it's important, right, actually shift in the narrative. So up to this point, all of God's actions and verbs that he has been communicating have been commands outside of himself. Let there be light, and there was light. Let the water separate from the land, and it was so. But in verse 26, God's commands don't call outside of himself. They actually move toward himself. Look at it with me. It says, and then God said, let us make man in our image. What we see actually at the very beginning in God's creation of humanity is that he is personally, he's involved, I'm sorry, in a personal way. That it is not just God commanding outside of himself, but God actually calls himself in the creation of humanity, showing his personal involvement. Now, this is important because this in many ways sets up for us what we're going to see. That really, when we consider ourselves and we consider families and the reality of our world, the place that all of that begins is in God. It's his personal involvement in it. The text does not say and humanity came into being. It says, let us make man in our image. God is the beginning and starting point of how we understand ourselves. Now, when God says, let us make man in our image, what is that reference of us is often one of the questions. Well, it kind of holds a kind of dual meaning, I think, actually in the text. It's a brilliant way that the, God speaks in this moment. On one aspect, it elevates the reality of the plurality that exists within the Godhead. There's already allusions to this earlier in Genesis 1, that you have God and then you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And so we recognize this God is unique in his being. What you see as you unfold the rest of the story is that, and what Christianity holds central to our faith, is that God is triune. He is three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's an essence that's carried in that, but even more than that, I think that would have been more apparent to the original audience, is that that verb, let us make man, carries a strong force here of communicating God's reality and authority in contrast with his creation. It's trying to signify not only his personal involvement, but his distinct involvement in who he is in how he creates human beings. 
And how does he create human beings? What does God call for? That he is going to make man. Now, here, one quick note of translation. The Hebrew word that is often used for man is the word Adam. And Adam can be both man and it can also mean humanity. So it's used as a way to reference both man and humanity. In this case, it's meant to carry that idea of humanity even as he creates man. So let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, one of the key tenets. God, in the way he sets up the world and specifically humanity, he creates human beings to be his image bearers. Now, what does that mean, that we're created in God's image? Well, there's two things that it means. First, it means that you and I are created to represent God in the midst of his creation. Images, or being the image of a God, would have been a common understanding for people in that day. Genesis is written in the ancient Near Eastern context. And one of the things of the ancient Near Eastern context is they would have had temples. And in those temples that would have been to various gods in that time, would have been central in every temple, was an image or a statue, an idol of the god that they worshipped. And that image or idol was meant to represent or display something about the god that it portrayed. Even now, if you get to ever travel to that area or see images, those statues contain certain elements that point to the God being worshipped. So the idea of image in their context was the idea of representation. But what's unique in this story is that God's setting up of the temple that will represent him is actually all of creation. It's the whole world and the whole universe. And the image that will stand at the center of that cosmic temple is human beings. That we actually are created to represent or show the rest of creation what God is like. Right? That's our purpose. That's fundamental that we're created in the image of God. But the second thing is not only are we created in the image of God to be his representatives, we're also created in the image of God to carry his authority. A second idea that would have been very prominent to the original audience was the idea that images, especially statues in those days, were representations of the authority, both of the gods and oftentimes the kings that conquered and, or, and, and ruled in light of those gods. So one of the things that would happen in those contexts is when they would go into war and they would conquer new lands, one of the first things that a king would do when he conquered a new day, land is he would set up a statue of himself. And that statue was meant to be an image of the king and represent his authority, who was in charge, that he now was over that land. And so when the author says that God is going to create humanity in his image, not only does it mean we represent him, but he's actually establishing us to display his authority over the rest of the world. We're meant to show who's really in charge. I remember the first time I encountered this idea and when I was in high school, I had the opportunity uh, to travel to Syria. And the president of Syria is Bashar al-Assad. Um, and he was, he was president then. He's still president now. And I remember, you know, I grew up in America, so it was a different context. And I remember going in. I remember we got into the airport in Syria. And on the wall, as soon as we came into the airport, was this giant portrait of Bashar al-Assad. I mean, it was like huge. Like it was like it was, you couldn't unnotice it. But what I began to quickly realize was this wasn't the only portrait that I was going to see over the course of my time in Syria. In fact, his portrait was everywhere. 
It was plastered outside. It was in different buildings that you went into. Everywhere you went, you saw this big picture of the president. And you could not mistake from the moment you showed up, you knew very clearly, I know who's in charge here, right? I, I know who rules and runs this country because the image communicated who had the authority. Now, when God creates humanity, he decrees that us as his image bearers would be the one that display that he is actually in authority over the world. And that our dominion, what is given to us, is meant to communicate God's rule and reign over all of his creation. We show who is ultimately in charge. And God reminds us, we're created in his image, and that next phrase, we're after his likeness, which is a great reminder. We're not God. Created in the image of God does not mean we are God. It means We're like him. We carry his likeness, again, to represent him and to extend his rule. And then God goes on to give dominion. I'm going to give them dominion over everything. And that's all the language is like high, low, top, bottom, heaven, earth, seas, all of it. You're going to have dominion over it all. It's royal language that authority has been bestowed to humanity to rule on behalf of God and to represent him to creation. Here's the point. I heard it this way. It's a simple phrase. Remember this. Humanity is appointed in creation as God's royal representatives to rule the earth in his place. We are uniquely designed as his image bearers. And that's important. It's important when we think about our lives. It's important when we think about who we are. It's important when we think about how we navigate relationships and even our families. The starting point of our understanding of ourselves in creation is we are originally designed to be God's image bearers. That must be held first and foremost in our understanding of humanity. Because oftentimes, unfortunately, what happens is I think we've lost sight of that and it creates all sorts of confusion in our world about our purpose, our identity, our role, our relationship with God, all of it. I was actually reminded of this um, through another pastor and an illustration that he gave about the London Zoo. And then I went up and looked up the article and I thought it was so interesting. So in 2005, the London Zoo launched a new exhibit in their primate section. And in the zoo, they decided to put on display for everyone who wanted to come and visit the zoo, six homo sapiens. That's human beings for you that that might have forgotten science class. And so they put six human beings in this cage, in this containment, whatever it was, to live. And these people did for a time. They played games, they sunbathed, they did this. I mean, this really happened. Like they they actually put, and people could come to the zoo and you could watch human beings in their non-natural environment, right? That was like the whole point. But what was fascinating as I read this article that CBS reported on it was some of the comments that were made about why they did this. So the spokesman for the zoo, Polly Willis, she said this about part of the reason of why they did this exhibit. She said, seeing people in a different environment among other animals teaches members of the public that the human is just another primate. One of the guys who was actually put on the exhibit, who was a chemist at the time, said this. A lot of people think humans are above other animals. When they see humans as animals here, it kind of reminds us that we're not that special. And I'm like, I think that's, like, God says the exact opposite. Like, no, you are that special. 
Like you've been given my image. You're meant to represent me. You're meant to rule in my place. You've been bestowed with something that's distinctive in creation that no other aspect of my creation gets. You get my image. Human beings are the only physical and spiritual beings in all of God's creation. The angels are not like us. The rest of creation is not like us. We are the only ones bestowed with the image of God to represent him and to carry his authority into creation so that his rule might be extended. This is foundational, right, for our understanding of human beings. We have to remind ourselves, we, all of us, are created in God's image. All people, no matter their ethnicity, their social or economic status, no matter where they're from, are created in the image of God. And the text actually puts that emphasis even as God creates. Look at verse 27. So again, you, you see this flow in the text. 26 is set apart in its structure. 27 is then set apart because the author now starts to use poetic language to put an emphasis on what God does in his act of creating. And he has this really unique structure in three stanzas in 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice the repeating phrases in there. God created and image. It's very clear how humanity is to understand ourselves. We are created by God and we are created with the image of God. And as we'll see in a moment, for the purposes of God. This is foundational to our understanding of ourselves and the world. And so you and I, every single person in this room and outside of this room, every human being has been bestowed with the image of God. Now that has been marred by sin, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but the starting place of the story is that is the unique role and that is the unique purpose that God has given to us as his creation. And that sets the foundation for where we go. So God decrees human dominion because he's given us his image. But there's a second thing in the text that we have to recognize as well, which God has also designed human distinction. So we see this repeating phrase in the thing. God created man, humanity in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Those repeating phrases, but then it adds a third stanza. Again, you feel the emphasis of it. Male and female, he created them. And two things the author's doing in this. One, he's highlighting the reality that all men, all women have God's image. They bear God's image. But he's also reminding us that God has inherently built into that reality a distinction between male and female that are a part of the way humanity collectively images God and are called to rule in his behalf. God has designed every human being as either male or female and that those roles, those realities, are meant to be part of God's global work of us being his image bearers and extending his rule. So not only does God decree human dominion, but he designs human distinction. And again, that's foundational to how we understand ourselves in God's design and his purposes. We, as men and women, as I heard one commentator say, are to rule over creation. We're not meant to just rule over one another. We're meant to be a blessed alliance together in our distinctiveness that extends the glory of God and the reign of God into all of creation. And part of the beauty of the way God has set it up is that in our distinctions, we get to see various aspects of 
God. In the way God has designed men, we see certain aspects of the image of God in who he is, in certain attributes and certain roles. Same thing with women, that we see unique aspects of who God is. We were praying, and before service, we pray from 7.30 to 8.30 in the morning. If you ever want to join us, feel free. We're here, we're in the conference room, we'd love to have you join us. But we were reminded in Psalm 131, which contrasts God's people coming to him like a child weaned on his mother, that there are unique aspects in motherhood in which we see God, right? The distinctions actually highlight the beauty and that God has set up his world that way, that fundamental to our design is the distinctions he's given us both as male and female, and then within even the distinctive ranges within that of our personalities, of who we are, of where we come from. Those things all are meant to be complementary to display the image of God. But I think there's a couple things that we need to recognize here just for a second, that really what the author in these three verses puts two key tenets that we kind of have to hold together. First is that because all men and all women are designed and created in the image of God, Men and women equally have value, worth, and dignity before God. One, gender or sex, is not elevated above the other. Although we believe there are certain roles that God has given, the worth, value, and dignity are not in question. You bear God's image, male and female. And we need to speak that clearly. But the second thing that we also have to recognize is that this verse teaches that fundamental to God's design of humanity is our distinctions. To mute the distinction between male and female gets away from the fundamental nature of how God created us. And that's important for how we understand family. Therefore, we must hold these truths together and see them as part of God's sacred design for humanity, for who we are. And they're significant for the flourishing of human beings. And really, as we're going to see in a moment, for the flourishing of all creation. And it's this design of distinction that also shapes the reality of our families. It's the distinction of men and women that form the fundamental building block of what we know as family. If you keep reading on into Genesis, you get to Genesis 2, where we recognize that as God creates the first male and the first female, he creates a unique relationship for them called marriage in which they come into covenant connection with together. They're joined as one, and from that, they bear fruit and bring new life into the world. So fundamental to family is this distinction between men and women and the context for which God has given that to be exercised to fulfill his purposes. Now, I always want to make a caveat. If you're single in this room, that does not mean that you have to be married in order to live fully expressive of the image of God that you carry. While human distinction is foundational to family, human distinction is not fundamental to a full life in Jesus. And the simplest argument for that that you can go back to and be reminded of is Jesus was never married and no one would ever argue that Jesus did not live as a full human being before the Father. So that means if you're single, you can experience the same thing. But what we need to recognize as we set the foundations for family is this distinction is important and sets the foundation for how family is then lived out in the context for which God creates it. 
We're going to come back to that in a minute because I think it's important for us to kind of unpack that. But what I want you to see is that as God designs human distinction, he then also directs human duty. That the design is meant to then be lived out with a specific purpose. Look at verse 28. So God blessed them. So as he creates this design, God brings his blessing. That's important. God's blessing is fundamental for how we experience flourishing in life. You live apart from God's blessing, you don't experience flourishing, you experience destruction. So God in his original design creates it good and blesses them. And then he gives them their marching orders. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God gives them every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every food to have as food. All the vegans said amen, right? There's a whole other discussion we can have on that that we're not bringing into today, right? But I just want to go back and focus on those first four verbs because I think they're fundamental then to see that not only does God design human beings, but he also directs in his design their purposes on the earth. Four simple things that we remember. First, they are to be fruitful and multiply, which means God's purpose for humanity as they live in his design, as his image bearers, is to begin to multiply in a way in which they would extend God's glory and God's rule across the earth. So they're to produce within themselves new life that will extend God's glory and God's rule to the parts of creation that have not fully experienced it yet. They fill the earth. That fundamental to how they understand themselves is this role to extend God's rule and reign. If we're image bearers of God who receive his glory and we're called to reflect that glory into creation, then part of our role is to fill the earth so it's filled with God's glory. And we see this throughout the text. We just saw this a couple weeks ago when we looked at God's mission, even now. We want to see the glory of God extended to the ends of the earth. That's why we seek to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because we long for the day when the glory of God covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And that's found in God's original design. Humanity was meant from the get-go to spread God's glory till it covered the earth, to fill it. And as we fulfill it, we subdue it. Now that's not meaning that we've given, I don't want to hear that language as domineering, that the role of human beings in creation is to go out and like dominate the earth, just use it for whatever we but really that we're given a unique role to extend God's authority in a way in which the earth in creation and the rest of humanity flourishes. That, that's what our authority is given for. I, I was actually reminded of this reality yesterday during our spring serve day for those of you that had the opportunity. So um, Ali shared earlier, but in case you missed it, we, we had the opportunity, a bunch of us, to go over to Heritage Park and serve uh, doing a bunch of different projects. And although there were some rain and thunderstorms, we survived, right? We made it through. Um, but as we were doing that, I got, I got to experience a couple projects that just, just reminded me in like kind of a microcosm sort of way, the, the power and potential and role that God has given us. And so one of the first projects they got to do after the rain was they were planting new native vegetation in an area that had kind of been devastated. So they were kind of rebuilding it and they asked us to come in and kind of put new plants in the ground and to kind of to, to do that work. And, and there was part of me that's like, yeah, this is, this is what we do as humans. We, we take things that need beautified, that need life, that need flourishing, and, and we work to cultivate it in such a way that life flourishes. I mean, that's not just gardening. That's all the things that we do in life and our jobs, Right? 
that God's given us work to do so life would flourish, so the earth would flourish, so culture would grow, so we'd experience beauty in life. That's part of being image bearers of God. But then the second project that I got put on was to go and to pull out these, these nasty weeds that had started taking over in our area called garlic mustard. And garlic mustard actually, um, what we found out from one of them, one of the, the lady workers told us that garlic mustard actually, when it goes into a place, will release chemicals into the ground that will actually begin to kill the native plants around it. So it, it literally like will take over a whole area. And so they wanted us to go through and remove it so they could protect kind of the native plants. And again, I thought, oh, th- this is part of what it means to subdue the earth. Like part of our role is to go into the areas where things are going outside of what's good and healthy for the flourishing of all and remove them or to bring justice in those areas, to deal with the things that might hinder the flourishing of God's creation and the flourishing of human beings. That this is, this is our role. You and I are to work together, all of us together as image bearers of God to see God's flourishing and beauty brought into places that it isn't and to work to protect creation in a way when things go outside of its boundaries that it's removed or dealt with in a way that the rest of the things can flourish. That's our purpose, to fill the earth with his glory. And God has designed humanity with this dignity. I mean, that's the foundational building block kind of understanding that we need to begin with. If we're to understand family, let's start with us. We've been created as image bearers of God who are called to fill the earth with his glory by exercising in a dominion, our dominion, in a way that brings flourishing to the places that God calls us and deals with the things that might hinder that flourishing. Now, that's a foundational block. What I want you to then see as we engage the series is families are fundamental to that vision. If God has designed humanity for dignity, which he has, families are fundamental to that vision. That the family actually becomes one of the building blocks and a primary building block for how God's purposes in the world ultimately are designed to be accomplished. That God's glory is to be brought to his image bearers who create new life and pass that on so those image bearers would continue to work to extend God's glory across the earth. The reality is even the call that's given to the first human beings couldn't be accomplished alone. That there had to be multiplication in order for filling to happen. And so the family unit becomes central in God's ultimate purposes in creation. Again, go back, hear me again, single people. I'm not diminishing your reality, but I'm just helping us understand. When we think of family, sometimes we have this like, take it, leave it, ah, this, that. Like, no, God actually designed it for a unique purpose in the accomplishments that he wants to bring about in the world. And families play a powerful, are meant to, play a powerful role in that call. Families form our identity, good or bad. That's the power they've been given. Families help us discover our distinctiveness in who we are. They shape our distinctiveness and help us learn that. Families are places where we're meant to learn how we become co-rulers with God and what unique gifts we have to bring to bear in God's world. And families, I think, are one of the most powerful entities in God's creation. Families are fundamental in the way we live out our human dignity around each other. All of us came from a family. We all have an aspect of this. Now, again, those families might be all over the spectrum, but what we remind ourselves is God's original intention would those would be good places where humans flourish and where dignity is upheld. 
And what I would argue is that that continues to need to be a place that we come back to as we navigate family dynamics in our world. Because unfortunately, we're existing in a world that is not just moving away from God's design for family, it has outright rejected it. And because of that, all of us are having to navigate how we interact with our family, the world of families, what families are, in a way that is actually moved against God's design. And this is where I want to, I, I want to draw our attention to something just for a moment. I want to be really careful here. Because I think oftentimes when we deal with this in our culture, the idea is Christians are just here to like bash on other people. Or just to put down all this, you know, like we're better. As we're going to get to, none of us are better. Jesus is better. Jesus is the only perfect family. Thankfully, he has the power to restore ours. But I think it's important for us to realize that we're existing. And part of the reason we exist in tension in ourselves is we exist in a world that has outright rejected what God has designed. And my point isn't to get in our face, bash you over the head if you struggle with this, but to invite us for a moment to see the question when it comes to family and even set the foundation as we move forward. Will I follow God's design and God's word or will I follow what the world says in regards to family? Right? The world comes along and says, the image of God is only important when I want it to be. That's when it matters. So the image of God, if it helps my vision of life, great. If not, no big deal, right? And the church comes along and says, or I'm sorry, God's word comes along way before. We just validate what he says. God's word comes along and says, no, the image of God is a non-negotiable on every human being. And this is why we're pro-life across the board. This is why we're committed to the needs of those who have special needs and individuals who struggle, who the world might ignore, and we say, no, they have value and dignity and worth before God because they're created in this image. This is why we come along and say, we're going to pursue ethnic and racial reconciliation because every ethnicity is endowed with the image of God, not just the ones we like or prefer or are like us. The image of God is not about our convenience. It's bestowed upon us from the very aspect of creation. The world comes along and looks at God's word and says, your gender and sex is ultimately determined by you and can changed and fluid whenever you so like it. We would say, with grace, no. God has fundamentally designed our distinctions as male and female, endowed in us in creation, and therefore he determines who we are because we have a unique responsibility to image him in the way he has created us. God has created gender and sex to be integrated both in our physical and emotional and spiritual realities. And although there are people who uniquely struggle in that regard, and I'm not denying the validity of that struggle, what we want to come back to and say, but what we believe is foundational is that you have been designed distinctly and that's meant to be integrated all the way through. The world comes along in these regards and says, your sexuality is ultimately determined by your internal feelings and attraction and has nothing to do with your external creation. And God's word would say, no, God has designed your sexuality uniquely and he has designed a unique context in which it is to be enacted so that the earth can be filled and his glory spread and new life brought. Therefore, we are called to follow God's design for our sexuality in order to experience flourishing. 
the world would come along and say distinctions in creation have nothing to do with the reality of family. Transgender and homosexuality, homosexual ideology seek to teach us that we can determine what a family unit is and we can determine what the purpose of that family unit is. And we would say, no, God is the creator of family. God gets to determine what a family unit is because God has intentional purposes for his family in what he has created and designed them to be. And what we fundamentally believe about the reality of creation and what we're going to see over the next few weeks is that when we turn away from God's design, it does not lead to human flourishing, it leads to human destruction. And I want to say that gently, because I know some of us are struggling, and we're struggling with families in this room, but at some point, we have to ask ourselves the question, what determines how human beings flourish? Is it the God who made us, or is it just whatever the culture feels like at the moment? Will we stand upon his word in our lives and practice? Or will we follow the changing tides of the world? Now, with that said, we all are navigating families and conversations in our culture. The call to hold God's word is to also to hold the truth in love, which means it's not our role to go out and just bash society with the truth of God's word. Although we believe these to be fundamental to who we are, how we understand the lives that we are called to live, we are also called to operate with love with those who struggle or stand against us in the world. At the end of the day, our gospel is not the gospel of human sexuality. Our gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we believe, when trusted and believed, will lead to the flourishing of human sexuality. But the place we start with people is Jesus He's the only one who is fully the image of God. He's the only one who has shown us what it looks like to live perfectly in the way God has designed and created human beings to be. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. And he's the one who's brought all things into being. And the good news of the gospel is that not only is he doing that, he's also redeeming us back in. Look at Colossians 1 with me, right? You can bring it up, Cam. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or judgments, right? You get the picture. He is the image. He's the one that's brought creation to bear in the world. He's the one who helped designed it. But the reality, what we remind ourselves is that all of us have fallen away from that. None of us have the right to look at somebody outside and say, well, like you didn't figure it out. You didn't figure it out either. If it wasn't for Jesus, we'd all be dysfunctional messages way at the end of our rope and if it wasn't for God's common grace. But the reminder of, and Colossians goes on to remind us, is that Jesus is also working to reconcile all things to himself. That he is the one that actually takes the brokenness of our world and our fallenness from being failed image bearers, which we are, right? That's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what he means by the glory of God there is our image of God We've all fallen short of living up to how we're supposed to be as the ones who both represent and rule God. But the good news is Jesus is reconciling us back. And that the starting point for where we experience flourishing in our lives and in our world, yes, is God's design, but it's being brought back to God's design through Jesus. That's why when it comes to how we navigate these issues, 
the place I always want to bring people is like, okay, I know there's all this stuff that we feel in tension in our world, and we're not going to diminish truth, but can we just start with Jesus? Because that's a place we got to go to anyway. I mean, isn't that why Paul says in Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. The work of God in saving us is conforming us to him because you and I cannot live out the call of being God's image bearers apart from Jesus. So we've got to come back to Jesus and our job is to bring other people back to Jesus. And as we do that, then we begin to see the truth of God begin to rule and reign over our lives and flourishing can begin to happen. Jesus restores back our dignity. And so as we go through this series over the next several weeks, we're going to look at some dysfunctional families. We're going to look at some messes. We're going to deal with some realities in the word. But all of it is meant to bring you back to Jesus. All of it is meant to show you that the way we navigate the challenges of our world and the challenges of our families is to set our hope on him and build our life on his love, his truth, his word. That's what I want to invite you into as we begin. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.